I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. Storytelling is what connects us as humans, and for brands, it is no different. A well-told story can effectively position your brand in the minds and hearts of your audience, and can convert thoughts and feelings into results and revenue. On this show, we dive into the unique and recurring principles of world-class storytellers from every walk of life. To help you level up your storytelling skills and knowledge to drive real, measurable results for you and your organization. Here's your host, Paul Furlong. Hello and welcome to Rule the World, the art and power of storytelling. I'm your host, Paul Furlong. Just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Anyway, without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Graham Brown. Graham is founder of Pical & Co, an award-winning podcast agency, an AI-powered, data-driven B2B podcast agency in Singapore. He's a published author on the subject of the digital transformation of communication, works including the Human Communication Playbook, the Mobile Youth, Voices of the Connected Generation, documenting the rise of mobile culture in the early 2000s in Japan, China, Africa, and India, and Brand Love, How to Build a Brand Worth Talking About. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Wonderful to be here. Looking forward to this. And by the way, I told my wife that I was going to talk to Paul from Liverpool. And she's a big Beatles fan, so she got really excited. So I want to just keep that mystery going a little bit longer. Amazing. Um, I've given you a little bit of uh, an introduction there. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, how you spend your time, uh, a little bit more into the world of Graham. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Well, I'm a storyteller. That's my gig. That's my way of getting paid and I think you know a lot of us and I guess your audience will resonate with this as well is that we've grown up with this idea of storytelling being once upon a time and there is that element of storytelling but increasingly in business people are realizing that storytelling isn't this fuzzy skill that you need to have but it's probably one of the most important skills that we have whether you are for example raising money for your startup or your you know, raising money for a film that you're aiming to produce or you're getting hired. It's all storytelling. It's really about how do you package data and how do you make people care about that data? So that could be, for example, an actor or a character in your movie. You know, how do you get somebody to compare, to empathize with a violent gangster like Coppola did with Godfather, right? So how do you do that? That's that's getting data and making people care about it. Or do how do you get millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people to care about public health and a chart like flattening the curve? That was a story. You know, flattening, the, flattening the curve was a story that 
billions potentially of people understood. You know, like most stories, it has heroes and villains. It has a past, a present, and a future, and it has an expectation of what we need to do in terms of fixing the problem. So that's all storytelling. And the way that that manifests is in the business world is really two ways. One is I help brands, particularly large corporates, tell better stories. And that is through creating their podcasts. And a lot of it is really just making the focus on the individuals, the people of the, the brands, you know, because people follow people, not brands today. You, you want to give a, a voice to the people of the brand, not this sort of brand. Nobody, nobody connects with that. So it's creating podcasts for the brands. And then the second part is helping leaders or corporate storytellers get onto and find podcasts because for them, it's a great way. You know, you're speaking at a conference, but you know, you look at the conference industry now, it's, it's, it's difficult. You've got to travel, but you've got all these fantastic communities that hosts like you have curated. You know, you may only have hundreds or a few thousand listeners, but somebody's done that with love. They, they've sort of curated a community and, and what a great way for anybody in business to connect with that community. So that's storytelling in a nutshell for me. And the way businesses are really resonating with it now, it really seems to be a, a shift from where we were, you know, even three or four years ago, pre-pandemic, there's a real shift towards the more human element of business and how you can tell stories around that. Amazing. Um, and yeah, as, as we know, and as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, storytelling is the, is the key and storytelling is, is what we talk about uh, the, the whole time uh, on this podcast in, in various different guises. Now, AI is something that you you look at and, and focus on and, and data, whether, as you say, it's the data behind flattening the curve or data in, uh, in, in The Godfather to try and sell that movie, to pitch that movie. Tell me a little bit more about kind of what data storytelling is and the importance of, of data storytelling, particularly from that kind of AI perspective. Hmm. Yeah, well, my background was in AI. I graduated with an AI degree in 1995 which is a very long time ago, gives away my age a little bit. Like they didn't know at the time what AI was or nobody could conceive what it was. So I was, you know, there's a time when it's good to be ahead of the curve, but sometimes the curve doesn't even exist yet. And when I graduated, they told me that I didn't have many job opportunities. I could either go back and teach AI or teach English in Japan. That was the only, you know, the only qualification you needed was to speak English. So I took that opportunity in 95 and that really got me on my start with my journey into communications because obviously I was in the business of communication. I saw the growth of the communications industry in Japan in the late 90s, you know, Japanese high school girls taking phones, um, text messaging long before anyone else in the world. And then seeing like that now percolate into teenagers in different countries in the world, you know, started with the Scandinavian countries and then into Europe and so on. And when I came back to London in the 2000s, late 90s, actually, um, I saw an opportunity to sell data to telcos. So I got into the business of data, like many people in research, packaging consumer research and then selling it to corporates. And what I found, Paul, was that they bought it readily, but around about something interesting happened around about 2006. We had just commissioned this um, global study and collected data from thousands of teenagers around the world. You know, what mobile phones are you buying now? Because we saw them as the harbinger of what came next. You know, they were the sort of the, the, the first, they, they were the first text messaging, the first to use, you know, to share content and so on. And bear in mind, if you go way back 2006, it was all Nokia, right? You remember the Nokia 3 series, the 7110, the flip out phone. This is before the iPhone, before even Facebook 2006. And so we did this research and presented it to the corporates at Nokia. And I remember at the beginning of the research, they had this 13-year-old American kid. And we asked him, what do you think of Nokia? And he just went, oh, it sucks. 
And then he just went off about you know, how his, all his friends use Blackberries and so on. And we presented this to Nokia and I thought, this is going to really you know, drop a bomb inside Nokia. They're going to change. They're going to realize they've lost it. They've lost that core market. And after the presentation, it was all very quiet and nothing changed. They didn't do anything. And one of the reasons was later that year, Forbes ran an article, actually a front page of Forbes magazine. I remember it had a picture of the CEO of Nokia and it said, if I remember rightly, a billion customers, can anyone catch the cell phone king? And that's all you need to know because, you know, we're in Nokia now. Like, they completely lost it. And I realized at that point that it wasn't about data. It was about the power of the story because they had internally a bigger story to believe in. And I was just trying to pitch the data to them. And it's at that point there was a pivot and a realization in my career that you need to package this data in a story if people are going to do anything with it and create change. And that was the beginning of data storytelling for me, how I went from AI into communications into data storytelling. And even now, I see people, we see people doing the presentations. You know, it, out it comes, the PowerPoints. Can you imagine? Now, I always think Martin Luther King, if he stood up before the Lincoln Monument in front of the, the crowds and said, I have a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> Can you dim the lights, please? That is what people do today when they try and get data across, when they try and get a message across. And I feel that we can do so much better. We can learn a lot from your world, the world of movies and film, for example. There are storytellers everywhere in business, you know, writers. We can learn from them and say, look, how do they take data? and package it in a way that people care. And that is fundamentally data storytelling. Amazing. Um, I love the Martin Luther King analogy. Uh, the, the whole history would be completely different, wouldn't it? It would. An awful lot of people. Absolutely. Um, and, and probably not in a very good way um, when you start digging down into that a little bit. So that really does make a difference, doesn't it, the storytelling. So how do we, um, how do we kind of turn that data into a story then what what are those what are the steps that we need to take um to take it from pure data and package it into that story mm. yeah if you consider if you think about one of the most effective ways of visualizing data is a map if you think about it like i think the first step paul is to realize that we don't see the world as it is we see the world as we are and I know you've had psychologists on here and um, many of them will, will sh point to the data itself or the research that shows that, you know, the world is very much interpreted by us. And the map is a great example of that. If you think of the map that you and I would have been used to at school, the Mercator projection, you know, it's sort of, you've got the, the US on the left and Europe on the right. And then if you're in New Zealand, you know, <laughs> You're right at the footnote at the bottom right. But the interesting thing about that representation is that, you know, if you've got Africa and then you've got Greenland at the top, it's huge. But actually, Africa is 15 times bigger than Greenland. But on this Makeda projection, it's all warped. But we accept that as reality. And the interesting thing is, if it, Paul, if you were to say to somebody, like, why is it like this? And they say, well, you know, the north on the top and the south on the bottom. It's not like in space, there is no up and down, right? It doesn't exist. And they say, well, you know, the compass points north. It, it doesn't point north. The compass points north and south. It's just that some people at some point in time painted the N with a red bit. Interestingly, in China, it, it points south, the, the red pointed, you know, there you go. It just shows that there's different worldviews. But the point is, is that, Really, if you think about data storytelling, it's about the map you choose for people to interpret the world. So you have to choose a map, and that is a framework for people to understand. Once you get past that point, then you can go into the, the technical how-tos of you know, how do you take data and package it? You know, how do you take a story and break it down? And this is where we get into your territory, I guess, is how do you create a narrative around a story? You know, as a movie director... You know, you, you never start at the beginning, do you? Like, Graham was born in 1972. Nobody cares. 
it, it's sort of you start in the middle, don't you, with like there's a dead body on the floor and a woman's dropped a gun and then she's running away in the distance. And it's like, how did we ever get here? That's the engaging part for the audience, isn't it? And it, it's always sort of told in that format, often present to past to future. So there are narrative structures to telling stories, which I, I, I don't know how true it is, but you know, there's like six or seven in movies, you know, with a few variations, right? But that's the point, isn't it? That we don't need anything new. We just need new actors, new content. So to answer your question, Paul, a very long answer, but the short answer is there are structures out there that exist in movies and books and popular culture that help us tell stories that work because they've been around for thousands of years. And all you have to do is take one of those structures and populate it with your data. And there you have it. There's the answer. It sounds like you're plagiarizing work, but look at every song, every story, it's built on something else that came before it, right? I mean, look at every single movie. I'm sure the movies you've been involved in, are, are they have archetypes which are very familiar. Yeah, 100%. There's nothing new under the sun. Good artists steal. And you're right, there's uh, traditionally there's seven stories. Um, is it seven? Seven, yeah. Seven stories, um, which is great. And I love that map analogy as well. I was on a call with uh, one of our American clients yesterday and he was stood in front of a, a map of the world. Hmm. And whereas uh, I'm quite used to being based in the UK, seeing kind of uh, Europe and Africa in the center of the map and then um, kind of Asia Pacific, as I look at it to the right in the US and South America on, on the left of the map, his map had the US and South America in the center of the map um, wow. with everything else spread out to the sides because the, he's based in the US, so that to, to, to them, quite rightly, is kind of the center of the earth and, and everything else spreads out from there. So, yeah, we all see things differently, don't we? Um, it looks weird, though, doesn't it, when you see that? It looks very different, um, and, and I noticed it. England looks very small. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, well, it is, isn't it, comparatively? <laughs> Not on the original maps, where it's all painted red. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when, uh, when England was quite happy to go around and just uh, plant a flag wherever it fancied. Well, that was the story, wasn't it? That, yeah. that was reinforced by the map, if you, if you think. Hmm. You know, so that was the key. It reinforces behavior, doesn't it? And yeah. views of the world. Yeah. And, and it's the same when we, when we think about ourselves as well, isn't it? Hmm. Um, the stories that we tell ourselves reinforce our behavior and what we believe about ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much we can learn. So uh, another phrase that I've heard you use as well, and I don't know how this ties in. I don't know if it's the same thing. I don't know if it's slightly different or complete, the complete opposite. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what user storytelling is? Oh, right. Yeah, this is um, where you would uh, tell a story about a user. Let's sort, call them a person. Now, let's stop calling them users, consumers. You know, the, the people that consume our stuff, buy our stuff. These are, uh, how do you create empathy with that person? How do you connect with them and understand their problems? Because one of the problems being is that we tend to sort of isolate ourselves in the, the ivory tower of work. And yet if you were to go out there and see how people are using your product or consuming whatever it is, then you would see that change. Um, you know, a great example is like going out onto the street and seeing people use technology or use a brand or whatever it may be or the way that they behave and that's user storytelling it's taking that information back in and sharing it with the team probably a really good example of that is lego now like lego is a great brand if you think about it it's just plastic bricks easily replicable by a chinese manufacturer but they haven't no people like grandparents don't buy their grandkids Chinese Lego. They buy Lego, right? Because of the brand. And interestingly, about around about 2000, Lego almost went bankrupt. You know, it was a family-owned business. And, you know, it grew from 2000 to like 2020 to one of the most profitable private companies in the world selling plastic bricks. And around about 2000, 2001, when they had a change, the incoming CEO, the first thing he did was say to his engineers, like, get out. Stop messing around. He said that, you know, 
there were engineers in Lego who were spending days, if not weeks, arguing over whether the the Lego chef, you know, this is sort of very stereotypical French chef, should have a a sort of, you know, one of those twirly moustaches or not. And he said, look, just get out, get out of the office. I don't want to see you back in the office. What I want you to do is get out there and I want you to go and see people using Lego. And at first they thought, oh, we're going to have to hand out with kids. Like, you know, I don't want to do that. But then they found actually there was all these adult Lego fans and they spend time with them and they realize there's this huge community of adult Lego users. And they were, you know, obviously they were not, not just making these kind of like kids stuff. They were making like amazing reconstructions like Hogwarts, you know, half scale or something crazy. You're spending hours, years building these things. And then they, they would spend time with them and really empathize with them and bring that information back into uh, Lego and tell the story of these users. And they were blown away. They never knew these people existed. And because of that, they launched those Lego uh, Technica sets. So I don't know if you've seen them. There's like these sort of thousand pound, thousand dollar Millennium Falcons or replica, you know, some car with actually probably, if it was just a little bit bigger, you could probably drive it. It was that technical. These sort of extremely expensive sets aimed at exactly they knew who the market was these were grown-ups probably parents who had money and that was the market they were targeting that's user storytelling and if you can think about how that takes place in everything that we do is that so much of the time we lose contact we we have this sort of compassion fade we see them as users we see them as numbers and yet if we really kind of empathize with them and what their drivers are we can not only provide a better service, but we can create some great products for them. I suppose that takes client data to a new level as well, doesn't it? Because in the past, mm. we'd maybe send out a client survey and get an NPS score and ask them, uh, score out of five, how, how did we perform? But by actually going out and getting that kind of user storytelling, that takes it mm. to a whole new level. A whole like level of insight, isn't there? That you've got this kind of confidence. I had a... Um, I've got a friend who worked in radio, uh, BBC radio for many years. And he, he told me that he worked with this sort of aged wizened DJ who was sort of you know, a sunset DJ himself. who had been there since probably the 1920s when it was a post office thing. And he said that um, one, one of the things he learned from this DJ was he got this photograph from a listener and he cut this photograph out and he stuck it on this microphone. And he thought it was really cute and weird why he did it but when he asked him he said well every time I go on air I speak to her you know I'm looking at her and I'm talking to her and I know exactly who she is and what her problems are and that's who I'm trying to reach not you guys not the listeners not the audience he knows exactly who his audience is and if you think like with radio radio has been around for 100 years and it's always been on its way out, but it's still going strong. And the core to that is those DJs know exactly who their users, if you like, are. And they speak to them as it, with that powerful word, you. And that's the point about the data part is that you can have all the data, but unless you can humanize that data as an individual, you really can't connect with them at that human level. So what's the, what's the right balance then? Uh, between data and storytelling. I, I imagine a world without data mm. uh, probably isn't super helpful, but uh, are, we, are we heading to a world where too much data, obviously too much data and not enough storytelling is not, is not great. So where, where, does that, where does that balance come in? What, what are we aiming for? What's the, what's the ideal? You want a number? Is that what you're asking for? I'm not, I'm not asking for a number because I don't want data. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> what, what's the... Um, what what we're we aiming for is it is it about getting really good data, lots of data, um, in order to better tell the stories, mm. or or is right. or is data not the not the aim? Yeah, it, it, right. You need the data to inform the story. In the same way, if you're a director, you would need good actors to act out the story, right? Uh, but without the story, it's awful. You know, it, the actors can't carry 
a movie with a rubbish plot or the screenwriter was terrible or the director is an amateur, you, you, you wouldn't make it work. So I think you look at it in that way. You need good actors. But you have to also have all this other stuff as well to carry it. I suppose you could carry a good movie with rubbish actors. I don't know. Probably not. It would be hard work. You could correct me on that. But I imagine you need both. In the same way, if you think about it, like climate change, for example, uh, you know, as a concept, as an idea, it's not new. Like this, we've known about climate change for 120 years. We've had data on it. But it's only recently when Greta Thunberg stood up and told a better story with that data that we started listening. You know, when she stood up in front of the UN and said, you know, you stole my dreams. Shame on you. That was a powerful story. And so you have to have both. She couldn't have stood up there and just done it off the bat with no data. You need, she had to have that, but the data was the missing part. Sorry, the story was the missing part of that delivery that we didn't have before. You know, I think even on Google, there's like 1.1 billion search results for climate change. There's, there's no, no hiding. We've got enough data on climate change. But the point is, is that you've got to have this combination of both. So to answer your question, I guess 50-50 would work. You'd need both. That keeps everybody happy, maybe. And it's, it's that story that creates that emotional connection, isn't it, that, that causes that kind of action to take place based mm. around the data, whereas the data kind of just does the intellectual elements but doesn't move people to action. You remember those old um, ads on TV where they would say, our soap powder washes whiter than white. And they would bring out a guy with a clipboard and a, you know, like a, a lab coat on, a white lab coat. And it that sort of sums it up, really. You need the story part, which is the whiter than white washing powder. But then you need the guy with the lab coat and the clipboard to make people believe that the story is valid. And it's very much how human beings absorb information, isn't it? We, we, buy on emotion and justify with logic. We need that both of those. You know, we like to think of ourselves as logical and rational, but the reality is, is that we're very much driven by emotion and story. But we need both. Because if you just gave somebody story, it would sound, you know, vapid. It would sound like it had no substance. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So tell me, what do you think about kind of the, the feedback loop then that can be created by uh, the story that comes from the original data then looping back into the data. Do you think that that will allow uh, for challenging some of the data or honing in on some more of the data so that we're not then kind of drowning in just tons and, and tons of data? How, do, how does that feedback loop work? Is there a feedback loop? Or does it tend to just be kind of a, a lateral process from data to story? Yeah, I mean, that could lead into some interesting areas, couldn't it? You know, where I think there's this, there's an old story about the Texas sharpshooter who was a guy who took a gun and he, he shot at the wall and then painted a target around it. And he said he was the, the best shooter in town. We've got to be wary of that, that, you know, the data is skewed to fit the story. And we see that everywhere, don't we, with fake news mm. or people only listening to, you know, the narratives that they want to hear. I th- 
to, to your point, if you're asking how do we better focus on or maybe hone in on data to get the data to match our story? Is that sort of what you're asking? Yeah, I'm not suggesting we write the story before the data's there, but in a world where we can get data on everything and, mm. and kind of drown in data, is there a way that we can more uh, focus on the, the correct data based on, obviously we'd need some data to begin with, but once we've mm. got the story, does that not help kind of uh, hone in on the on the correct data that we need. Yeah. I, if we have to look at it all as a discovery process, don't we? We're, we're testing a hypothesis. If we're doing it scientifically, we are doing it with the scientific method, which is we're testing an idea or a hypothesis, which is a story, if you like. And in theory, if we do it the right way, we're disproving or proving it exists. So in, th- in, in theory, not in practice, we should be agile enough to be able to change our approach to look at things a different way. But I, I think that's why, I mean, there's a lot of focus today on diversity and you know inclusion in the workplace because those bring in different worldviews and narratives to challenge data, to look at things in a different way. If you just have one homogenous group looking at data, then you know, they'll just accept whatever you're given. But if you have people say, well, actually, I'm not sure if that is actually correct or I'm going to challenge your assumption about that, then you have a healthy debate. I think a short answer to your question is that we need healthy debate and it needs to be open. And this is the problem we have today in media is that it's too polarized to have these open scientific conversations about, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you and me are both right. You know, we can have two opposing views and both be correct. It's very hard. You know, it's very hard to have these kind of open conversations today. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The fact that you can, the story might be able to create that feedback loop back into the into the data and vice versa. And you've got this kind of constant loop of uh, data to story to data to story. Mm. Well, you, you, the problem with it is obviously reinforcement bias, isn't it? Mm. That um, you, you develop a pattern. We see this in AI with bias. Obviously, there's a lot of focus now on bias in AI. And um, a lot of focus as well, for example, about accents. You know, I'm sure you've picked up Siri or one of those voice-activated bots and tried to speak to it and it didn't get your accent. And you maybe even tried to be a little bit more American so it could understand you. And it's embarrassing talking to these things, but that's bias at a very sort of innocuous level, at a more sinister level. It affects everything because the data that we're working from informs our experience or expectations. So, of course, maybe I can't understand an accent, but that could also affect hiring decisions, for example. And it's not just your accent, it's like where you're from. And you know this in either this slip. You look at advertising in the UK, for example. If you have a, a Liverpudlian or a Scouse accent, you'll be typecast in a certain type of advert. You might sell financial services, or that might be a Scottish accent or, or Yorkshire accent. But this is a bias that, in a very innocent way, shapes our experience. But there is this much wider bias at play, which shapes society and how we interact with each other. So at that level, data is shaping, um, sorry, bias, our expectations of data is shaping our realities, if you like. And that's the challenge that we have with AI because once it's in the machine, we kind of lose control over the thing as well. So, you know, you and I know that it might be funny if somebody has an accent and that's typecast, but now put that into a machine and make decisions about whether or not you get a loan or whether or not you get the job. That's a different ball game entirely. Obviously, that's quite scary. Um, and, and that does give us um, some elements where we're going to have to potentially interact with the AI learning. But on a slightly lighter note, I've noticed uh, recently with uh, Netflix did it where they uh, fed loads and loads of stand-up uh, comedy into uh, AI and got 
the AI to create a, a stand-up show, which was appalling. Um, <laughs> and someone else has done it with surprise, surprising. <laughs> um, and someone else did did it with um, with all the superhero movies that have ever been created, um, and that was absolutely terrible as well. Um, do you, it didn't put you out of a job. No, thankfully. How long, uh, if at all, do you think it will be until AI uh, learns the abilities of uh, of storytelling so that they can take the data and create the stories themselves? This is a really interesting question because it raises the question and the issue of what it means to be human. And going slightly esoteric here, that I love the story of the stand-up comedy, because I can just imagine that how that would sound. And I'd lo- actually really like to see some of that content. And it, it, in, in many ways, if you think about like music, which is a very human, uh, human pastime content, if you like, so much of music is, is quite personal to us as well. We all have our favorite music. We have that song. Uh, you may have a song that makes you cry, but to me, I'm like, nah. and vice versa. Like, you just don't get it because it's so personal to us. And the interesting thing about music is that AI can easily write music. It's done. We're well, well beyond that. It can write classical music, can write techno. You program it and it can knock out as good as anything that's in the charts today. But the interesting thing, and like going back to the stand-up, is that it's not about the content, it's about the context of that. And what I mean is that you think about, like take art, for example. There are lots of examples. You see the videos of like a monkey painting, like a Jackson Pollock, or you know, they give a, a paintbrush to an elephant and it just knocks out something. It's like a Rothko or something. But the, the difference is, is that it's not about the technical aspect of the music or the art, or the comedy. It's about who's telling it. And the difference between a monkey and Rothko and Jackson Pollock, and the difference between AI and name your musician, is that with AI, it can't tell a story. It can't sing a song from a position of pain. You know, a machine learning algorithm has never been 14, 15, 16 years old and been rejected by a woman a girl, you know, and the ground opened up and swallowed him whole, right? It's never had that. It's never experienced pain or loss like we as human beings. It's never had that experience to shape it. So it's never able to share that story with authenticity. And we know this because when we listen to music or even when we see a painting, the first thing we want to know is who is it? And when we know who it is and their story, it changes our expectation and how we interact with that music. Because you've heard music and you you can hear it in the shop when you're walking around and then you get into the the musician and and everything changes. Now you start listening to all their stuff and, oh yeah, this is the song I kept hearing a while back, but now I'm really into it because I'm into that band or that singer. And that's the difference because we will never have that connection with AI. So to answer your point, you asked, how long would it be before AI can tell stories? It can create stories, but it can never tell them in an authentic way. You can feed it content and text and prose and grammar rules, and it can spit them out. And it can do all that with, you know, the the physics of music, or even it can probably create a movie. But what is missing is the heart of that which is, it's not something spiritual. I don't believe it's a soul. I believe that it's simply the fact that we've all had experiences and journeys, which we, you and I and all the listeners share. You know, so when the Beatles sing, she loves you or love me do or whatever, it's not about love so much as about loss, isn't it? It's about, oh, I love this girl. I've done something really stupid and she's leaving me and I want her back. And we connect with that. We say, oh, actually, that was me. That, I, you get me, I get you. And you'll never do that with AI. Unless, of course, it's faking it. But we would never know. So in the past, the, um, the Turing test was all about a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior. And I don't know if I've not really kept up with it, but I'm sure 
there's AI that can beat the the Turing mm. test now. So um, in the future, do you think the Turing test would evolve into um, into a, an AI telling a story and being able to to tell the difference between uh, the AI by the ability to recognise that it's it's soulless in its storytelling? Yeah, we, we um, there's a an interesting uh, series on I think it's on TikTok or YouTube called uh, Deep Tom. I think it's something. Like, it's a Tom Cruise fakes. It's actually very convincing. It's an actor, and they've they've uh, you know they've obviously transplanted AI algorithm onto his face, so it's deep fake, and he acts like Tom Cruise, and he, they've changed the voice and. So you wouldn't know. So that's already out there at play. But then what's going to happen is human beings will simply move the goalposts. We will say, okay, well, that's fakeable. I'll accept that, you know, all these people on Instagram probably don't look like that in real life. (laughs) You know, maybe their eyes aren't that big and their chin that pointy. When I meet them, I might be disappointed. So what's going to happen is we'll just adapt. We'll move the goalposts and we'll say, well, Okay, fine. But I'm now going to place a premium on what's not fakeable. So what cannot be faked? This cannot be faked. You know, Graham and Paul talking cannot be faked because, you know, we're two human beings and we know we're talking to each other and it's, it's extremely hard for this conversation to be faked. So it's been validated, if you like. There's a bit of social proof because, you know, we've had a chat offline, et cetera, et cetera. So more emphasis will go on to the mediums which are unfakeable, like podcasts, for example, and shift away from those that can be faked. And I think that's the natural evolution of, you know, effectively what is our, you know, mark of authenticity, our measure of authenticity. It will just evolve with that, right? It's our emotional handshake, if you like, between people. And interestingly, actually, Paul, there's something called the reverse Turing test, which is that, that, in, rather than a computer trying to pretend that it's a human being, it's a human being that can't be distinguished from a computer. So that's more of a problem long term, is that actually we won't be able to distinguish between the two. We won't know. I don't know, like this guy sitting here, and you don't know if I'm real. So we will simply seek out better ways of finding out who's authentic and who's not. So it's going to put a lot of value, isn't it, on authentic companies, companies that have the ability to tell stories, separate the data from the story and be able to put that into an emotionally engaging way uh, and be able to communicate well with their prospects, their clients, um, and, and maintain that authenticity and that storytelling throughout their kind of client's life cycle. It's happening now, yeah. This is, I think, one of the key drivers of podcasting now is AI that they're not happening as a coincidence or in parallel. They're happening because of each other, you know, because there's so much push into machine learning and AI and so much can be done now by machine and faked. People are looking for that connectivity, the connection, sorry, not connectivity, that, that human connection, the trust that we don't get in other places. So it's starting this, this, you know, this, parallel growth in AI and podcasting. And we'll see that in other ways as well. You know, I, I feel that in, in time, the value of a face-to-face meeting would be extremely high because it won't be done so ad hoc or randomly like it used to be. You would meet people really because it was important. Like when people say to me now, can we meet for a coffee? My default response is, Why? <laughs> Let's get on Zoom. But so the people you do meet, it's going to be special, isn't it? So I, I feel that it's already happening and that will affect companies as well, for sure. You know, a lot of people working remotely now. So that's going to change. It's going to change our dynamics. Amazing. Um, I love everything that you've talked about here. I've, I've certainly learned a lot. Um, and um, thank you very much for sharing everything uh, that you've talked about your wisdom and and your knowledge. I've got three quick fire questions that I like to ask all of our guests, if if you don't mind. Yeah, let's do it. So, who do you think of when you hear the word story, and why do you think of that person? Ah, uh, so many good ones. I like uh, Steve Jobs, obviously, in 
the world of business because he was a master storyteller. And um, then he leads into the second person. So I'm going to give you not one answer, but I'm a storyteller. So what do you expect? It's like an Arabian Nights answer, isn't it? Sort of like stories within stories within stories. So you've got Steve Jobs, and he borrowed a lot from Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero of a Thousand Faces, which I recommend. I'm sure, as anybody in film would know, it's it's those seven genres, the seven structures, if you like. I think one of the best storytellers of the last century was John F. Kennedy. And he he took mankind to the moon effectively with his words. You know, it was, we'll land a man on the moon and bring him home safely by the end of the decade. In a world, everybody, of black and white TV, how about that? Before the internet, and the fascinating thing, Paul, was that NASA, the Apollo 11 program, had a mainframe computer of four megabytes which I think is just beautiful. They got, think about it, guys, they got to the moon, not because of data, but because of stories. How about that? It's phenomenal achievement if you think about it. And so that really, to me, is just testament to the power of story and what it can do for people. So those three people, I think, are good starting points if people want to learn about how to tell better stories. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And can you recommend any good books or websites or blogs or podcasts in particular uh, about storytelling? The Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, The Hero's Journey, obviously, by Joseph Campbell is a great one, which really is about um, effectively how, you know, throughout time, for thousands of years, we've been telling the same stories. I and mean, a great example is um, Marvel's Endgame, which was, I think, the I'm not sure until Spider-Man's just come out, but it's like the biggest grossing movie of all time, $3 billion in sales. But, you know, is it the best story of all time? No. It's the same story as Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, the Bible. It's all the same. It's got the same plot line. They just borrowed from each other, even right back to Gilgamesh, you know, the Babylonian times. And, what Joseph Campbell does, and it's, great, it's a great read, is really just break that down and say, these stories contain these similar elements. And once you start seeing them, it's actually quite revelationary. You'll sit in a movie and you'll see, wow, that's the departure scene. <laughs> you know, that's when the hero crosses the river and has to go on the rocky road. You know, I've seen that before. Or this is the atonement scene when the hero has to make peace with his father figure. <laughs> who may be an evil dark lord or whatever it may be, but they have these sort of similarities. And when you look at it, you wonder, well, why is that? Why is it that, that we have been telling these same stories for thousands of years? It's because actually they are frameworks we understand. And to everybody out there telling stories, the point is, is you don't need a fantastic story to get great results. You need a story we already know. And that's where people get it wrong. And so if you want to know more about that, read Joseph Campbell's book. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I um, I was talking about A Hero with a Thousand Faces with um, with my business partner, Andy, and um, I, I've ruined every movie for him ever. <laughs> <laughs> he now sits in, in the cinema, watch the movie, and he goes, I know, I know the character's going to die. He has the knowledge. Yeah, man. he has the knowledge and uh, he... he constantly uh, sarcastically thanks me for uh, for ruining movies for him so my mum did that paul she yeah. was she was she read a lot and i think that's where she got it from and she sat i thought as a kid she had this magical ability to thought she had privy to all these scripts in these movies how do you know what's going to happen next but you know the point was and i'm sure it's the same for your friend is that it doesn't change our enjoyment of the movie at all like she still enjoyed the movie even though it's like a song isn't it you don't listen to a song and say, wait a minute, I've heard this type of song before, Boy Meets Girl. <laughs> no, I'm not going to listen to it. That's the point. It's all about the familiarity. Use what's already there. Yeah, and I love it then when you get a, a writer, a director, someone like the Coen brothers who mm. take you on that journey and then suddenly completely mess with you. Uh, something like yeah. Country for Old Men. Um, and I won't, I won't give any spoilers away for those who've not seen it, even though it's been out for... 15 odd years um but they just completely go off book um but they know completely. the structure so well that they can do that um but you shouldn't do that until you know the structure that well 
Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, and it's great. That. Learn the rules before you break them, folks. Yes. 100%, 100%. Didn't they do that one of the, the, that Western one that was really bizarre? That was them, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, they've done a, a few like that. It just went completely out of there. There's a good example. It just completely went, it started off as a normal movie and just went off 90 degrees. Yeah, so. completely. Um, and then they did the um, Inside Lewin Davis, which is cyclical. The story's just cyclical. And it just keeps mm. repeating itself. So they, they know stories so well that mm. they know how to uh, how to change it. But yeah, know your story structure first before you start doing stuff like that. Yeah, That's exactly. why I love the Coen Brothers. Um, anyway, last question for you. Um, Let's do it. Uh, where can we find out more about you? Where can we find you online? Where can we listen to your podcasts? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thanks for the invite first. And thank you for allowing me to share my passion for storytellers with your audience, Paul. Um, if people want to find out more about me, go to my website, which is Graham D. Brown. And if you don't put the D in it, you'll get the wallpaper company. So it's Graham D. Brown, everybody, um, dot com. And you'll find my writings about storytelling, what I do on the podcast side, as well as my podcast as well. That's a great place to start. And then if you're interested in podcasting as well, if you're interested in getting on podcast, I've got a, a course there, which is free. You can go on there, which is a 12-step guide to how you can tell better stories for podcasts that's brilliant well graham really appreciate you uh, you spending time with us today and and sharing your knowledge uh, thanks for uh, thanks for coming along this was great fun paul let's do a part two a chapter two in the yeah. story love that idea brilliant well thanks again and enjoy the rest of your day thank you just a quick reminder that my book, Rule the World, Master the Power of Storytelling to Inspire, Influence and Succeed, is now available. You can get hold of your copy in all good bookshops, including Amazon and Kindle, Waterstones and WH Smith in the UK, Barnes and Noble in the US, and all good bookshops throughout the rest of the world. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Rule the World. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit weareopusmedia.com for more resources based on today's topic, as well as access to more episodes that will help you develop your storytelling abilities. That's weareopusmedia.com. Thank you, and see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.